A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Welcome to the Gravity Podcast, where we host conversations on developing a Christian spirituality rooted in love that fosters resilient faith in everyday life. Everybody, you're listening to the Gravity Podcast once again. This voice you know by now is Matt Tebby. I'm joined by my friends Christy and Ben. Both of you are looking chipper. Thank you. I recently Thanks. shaved my head. Oh, it does I did look not. It does, <laughs> freshly shorn. Uh, it does look good, Ben. Yep. I'm feeling um, chipper. You know why? Why? I think I, I do. You I do? I, I think I do know why. No, you have no idea why, Matt. I okay. promise you. Okay, then tell us. Because does, I haven't told anybody other than like Paul, and now oh. I'm telling the whole world. Oh. Um, but You're pregnant. I, no. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> Triplets! Incredible! Yeah. Triplets! Triplets. Wow, you've gone from six kids to nine. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Not that. I got an email today from my first reader, and he approved my dissertation, people. I'm going on to the oh, defense. Oh, nice. Woo-hoo. It's a big Your first reader. Well done. That's awesome. Yeah, Incredible. so... It's a weird nice work. feeling to like work for years on something yeah. and be like, okay, final step. Here we come. Wow, so I'm amazing. feeling chipper. Chipper, um, maybe even more chipper than I feel with my freshly shorn head. That, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> what, what, is it, what is the timeline, Christy? Like when do you defend then? I think I'll defend in February, graduate Ooh, in May. What? Yep. That's incredible. Yep. That's amazing. That's great. This has been such a long journey. I know. So anyway, thanks for celebrating with me. Mm. I'm proud of you. That's amazing. It's such a great accomplishment. Incredible. Nice job. Thanks. Um, And I think your dissertation is going to come out a little bit today in what we're chatting about. I think it will. Yeah. I'm excited, actually. Yeah. Uh, Before we we hit go on this conversation, uh, any uh, stories to share? I mean, Chrissy just shared a story from her life. Been any stories you've read or any recommendations that you have? I've got I I've, I've got a recommendation mm-hmm. while you think. Okay, tell us. Okay. Do you need time to think, Ben? I could use some time to think, yeah. Okay. Yeah, always. Um, I have so sometimes I like to make fruit smoothies for breakfast. <laughs> and right. I put oh, a little I put a little pr- wait, that's not it wasn't meant to be a joke. I don't, I don't know why I, I don't know why I chuckled. <laughs> <laughs> Fruit smoothies. That's hilarious. All right, moving on. Was that the dad joke of the week? No. Okay, sorry. New year. Fruit smoothies. Yeah. New year, new me. Uh, Okay. But but here's the quandary I run into is that I would drink a fruit smoothie, you know, with like blueberries, strawberries, uh, some vegetable protein powder, and some like greens powder, and then some flaxseed and some chia seed. You know what I mean? Like a healthy little like... 
you know, fruit, yeah. fiber kind of deal, protein. But I, the problem is I would, I think because of how non-substantive it is and or the sugar in it, I would get hungry like immediately, like an hour and a half later. Oh. Um, but I read somewhere that one of the reasons smoothies don't bring a satiation feel is because uh, they're mostly liquid and your body, your your brain doesn't read liquid uh, as substantive and it doesn't give you a satiated feeling. But if you drink the smoothie slowly, your, your brain registers a, a feeling of more satiation. Hmm. So, uh, listener. You're halfway through. I'm holding up my smoothie, <laughs> and I've been sipping on this sucker for four hours. Been nurse, nursing a smoothie. I've been nursing a smoothie for four hours. Do you feel full? I feel fullish. Wow. Full-esque. Okay, but does that work if I'm like sipping my sugared up coffee? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that's a different thing. I'm holding it up. I'm halfway through. I don't think the same principle applies with- Probably not. No. Probably not. I if, feel hungry. Oh, well, hey, there you go. <laughs> It's working. It's working. Oh gosh. What an incredible okay. recommendation. It works for all liquids. <laughs> well, including water. <clears throat> I don't know if you have it. anything to share. I'm going to go ahead and sip my smoothie now. Yep, go ahead. Um while you sip your smoothie, I will share. I think you're reading this book too, Matt. Um but I bought this book last year and um I just got into it and I am loving it. Heck the yes. Enchantments of Mammon. How Capitalism oh. Became the Religion of Modernity by Eugene McCarraher. Yes. That's how you pronounce his name. Um, anyway, this this book is a this book is a monster. Whoa. I'm holding it up for the for my my friends to see. It's probably like, what is it? Six hundred, almost seven hundred pages. Mm-hmm. Um, huge monster. A, a bit of an academic, you know, philosophical culture studies uh, kind of thing. Um, but man, it is so fascinating. Uh, to read. So anyway, if you, if this is your thing, if you if you like huge books that explore these kinds of issues, and um, I don't know, it, it's somewhat um, he he goes against the prevailing uh, assumptions of let's say Charles Taylor. I don't know if you guys know who Charles Taylor is, um, but Charles Taylor talks about how the modern world has been disenchanted, and that's part of the big problem of secularism and modernity that there's disenchantment. We no longer we no longer think of the world as an enchanted place, but uh, his basic argument is that we we do that capitalism actually is a form of enchantment, and that uh, it just it's really really tricky because it comes to us as if it's not creating an enchanted world. So anyway, I'm still figuring out what all that means, but um, but basically he talks about capitalism as a religion and money as basically like the way that it enchants the world. So awesome. anyway, that's my recommendation Okay. anybody who's interested in such things. Thanks. I love it. I recommend that too. I am also reading it. It's, yeah. it makes you work though. It does. It does. But he is, uh, for, for being a kind of more academic book, he's a very engaging writer. He's, he's not like obtuse. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's a very engaging writer, a good writer. So anyway, that's my recommendation. I'm reading a book about what we're talking about today. Oh, wow. oh okay. well, let's yeah. segue. Let's get into that. We are okay. talking about shame, uh, mm-hmm. and in particular, we're talking about shame. What is it? Is it always bad? How do we understand it as Christians? 
and what what can we learn about it? Um, this is uh, the impetus for this conversation comes from listener feedback. Yeah. Uh, somebody listened to our podcast over Christmas where we began talking about shame kind of as a sidebar, really. Yeah, basically just came up unbidden. Yeah. Right. We didn't even know we were going to talk about no, it. No, we didn't. But yeah. as we're wont to do, we rabbit trailed down <laughs> the jolly old road of shame. Uh, roll, uh, path of shame and there it is the gel the jelly roll of shame is that what you mean <laughs> and uh somebody in our gravity community by the way if you're not a part of our community we're gonna share more we've shared all about that but you can uh check the show notes it's free to join yes. she was uh we have a place in our community for members to chat about episodes on the podcast and she left us a message her name's naomi we got her permission to share her thoughts and i thought i'd i'd read some um, and then maybe we could put these in the show notes too, Ben, because sometimes it's hard to um, remember them all, you know? Yeah, yeah. But let me let me read a little bit. I'll read a little portion here, and then we can maybe respond. Uh, this is from Naomi. Hey, all, she says, I'm just in the middle of the Christmas episode in the shame chat. I've done so much thinking about shame in the past 18 months or so. I also agree that there is a form of shame that is healthy, which is different to guilt. I think... Guilt is linked mm. to rules. I did something wrong that broke a societal rule. You can feel guilt outside of a relational context because it's about our social rules. But shame is about broken relationships. That's an interesting That's an interesting delineation. We'll come back to that. Yes. That was my editorial, sorry. Uh, here's back to, <laughs> back to Naomi. <clears throat> Toxic shame says, I am a bad person and I am worthy of being expelled from the group. If people saw the true me, they would reject me. That's toxic shame, she says. Healthy shame, says Naomi, is about recognizing that my actions can break relationships and hurt people, and therefore, hopefully, keeps me from doing those things. Part of our problem, I think, is that we haven't how to repair damage we do to others, so we fear our shame will lead to permanently broken relationships. My understanding is that in honor-shame cultures— this is more codified. So there are clear ways to restore honor if relationships are damaged. Thoughts? It's good. I mean, she makes a couple points there. The first is the difference mm -hmm. between guilt and shame. Guilt is breaking a rule. Shame comes from breaking relationship. Yes. And then that's the first thing. The second thing is toxic shame is an internalization about my identity, right? Whereas healthy mm -hmm. shame is about recognizing that my actions have broken relationships and hurt people, which then the healthy shame would do two things. One, maybe keep me from hurting people. Or right. two, if I've hurt someone, move towards them to rectify it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. And her third right. point is yeah. in honor-shame cultures— they have a much greater vocabulary and understanding of what is shameful, what breaks relationship, and how do mm -hmm. we restore honor, which is the opposite of shame, how do we restore relationship, honorable relationships, if the relationship is damaged? And I think the implication of that is we don't live in a primarily honor-shame culture, so we don't have that imagination of how to repair damage when relationship yeah. when relationships are broken. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few things here that are pinging for me as I um 
reread uh, Naomi's comments uh, through through your voice, Matt. That's lovely. Um, but uh, one thing is that I think it's really helpful to delineate the to delineate between the healthy shame that breaks relationship and the guilt that we feel when we break a rule, break the law. And I think that that to me, there's something clicked into place for me when I read that. I was like, that is that that is very different. I think it's very different the the feeling that I've broken a rule and I'm I feel guilty about that versus I have violated some sort of social contract here. I've hurt somebody's feelings. And that is different from breaking a rule. Because I can hurt people's feelings having not done anything technically wrong. Right? I mean, you can hurt people's feelings when you haven't broken necessarily a rule, yeah. but you know, it's just the way that you came across to them or the way that they interpreted that, like that is that that's a different kind of violation than, oh hey, you you committed some sort of sin or you know, you violated this rule. It's more about the relationship. I think that's really key. Yeah. So that's one thing. Yeah. Like it's come back it's to the interesting because, you know, the way that we would in America define shame as kind of this inward, I'm bad, right? Yeah. And yet in shame cultures, shame is just kind of the public embarrassment that is put on a person. And sometimes that's done because that person is doing something wrong. Right. And so, and then sometimes it's done because the people who are shaming that person are wrong. Mm -hmm. Are you with me? Um, and so in, a, it's hard. We have to like, for sure, understand the differences between our culture and other cultures that live in this shame, honor, um, kind of life. But I think at least in America, what can happen is we feel shame, that inner feeling, and then we go into a shame spiral and we believe mm. lie upon lie upon lie about ourselves. And I think mm. that in a shame culture, um, I'm sure that that can still happen, but there is a, there's a shaming that happens, but it, it's but there's like truth around it and relationships around it to bring that yeah. person into back into relationship with those people. Yeah. 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 That was the other thing that I was thinking about, Christy. This is the very same thing is like, we don't live in an honor shame culture. And so that doesn't mean we don't experience that kind of shame. It just means that we don't know what to do with it. Right. Right. In an honor yep. shame culture, there's like, oh, I know exactly what to do if I have offended, you know, my parents or offended my neighbor. Like there's a ritual that we do. There's like there's some action I can take that mm -hmm. is recognized by the community as, oh, that's what you do. And this person clearly, you know, wants to be part of the community again, is promising never to do that again, that kind of thing. And so part of me wonders if maybe some of the reason that toxic shame has taken over our culture in the way that it has is that we just don't know what to do with the sense of shame and we turn it in on ourselves. Yeah. Like there's no way of resolving it out here in the community so it must be, we just create a story about it, which is like, I must just be the worst. Bad. I must be yes. terrible. I must be bad. That must be the reason that this happened. And, you know, the only, the only resolution we can figure out is just like, oh, well, I guess I'll just punish myself by feeling mm -hmm. this way about myself. Yeah. Right. I don't know. That's conjecture, but I wonder about that. We'll be right back. The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course. 
our 12-month cohort-based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation. Let's get back to the show. I think, Ben, we don't know what to do with this. We don't know how to resolve shame is is one of Naomi's points, that in honor-shame cultures, it's not that they necessarily are better or worse, but it's more of they have a more sophisticated understanding of how shame works and and then have maybe rituals or practices or litanies that deal with it mm-hmm. publicly. Right. Privately and publicly. There's a way to right. resolve shame. Right. Rather than yeah. just like you mentioned, stuffing it, forgetting mm-hmm. about it. And then we know that that internalizes it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I, I would. I'm also been thinking about ways that I've seen this show up in my life, and I had this memory of I think I was maybe twelve or thirteen years old, and I, I distinctly remember this. I remember being in my kitchen, like the, in the house that I grew up in, um, and saying something just offhand. I don't remember what I said, but I just I remember it feeling like a thing that I would normally say, and I remember my mom burst into tears Oof. and like went to the bedroom and like closed the door. And I think it was the first time I realized that I could hurt my mom's feelings or maybe that my mom had feelings. You know what I mean? Like when you're a kid, you sort of just think of your parents as, you know, they just take care of me and I, I can do mm-hmm. whatever. And, you know, but um, I think it was the first time I realized that my words had some power to actually hurt my mother. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling, I think it was this healthy shame actually. I didn't think immediately that I'm a, I'm a terrible, no good person, but I did think, oh, I, I feel bad for what I have done, not because I broke a rule, because I don't remember what I did. You know what I mean? I don't remember what I said to her, but I feel bad that I have harmed this relationship, you know, and this person that I love yeah. and, and I, I don't want to hurt this person. Yeah. And I remember feeling that, like, I was like, I... I don't want to do that again. I should, I should watch out for this. <laughs> I should watch what comes out of my mouth here. Um, so I don't hurt people. Christy, I, I want to get your take on this because I think Ben, that's a good example. I think a lot of us have been really helped by Brene Brown and the way she talks about toxic shame. And mm-hmm. I think her and Tim Keller, uh, oddly, strangely enough, uh, define guilt and shame very similarly. Guilt is feeling yeah. bad for the wrong I've yeah. done. And shame is feeling bad for the person I am. And, and um, in that little example, Ben, I think mm-hmm. Brene Brown and Tim Keller would say, you did something wrong, and so you felt guilty about it. And they would describe shame then as, 
if you internalize that guilt as something is wrong with you based on that thing, then you have right. uh, shame, and that's bad. But but right. what you're naming, what Naomi named for us, is that there's actually another dimension to the wrongdoing. It's not only about the individual. It's about the mm-hmm. relationship. Yes. And you 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 broke, you transgressed some uh, covenant with your mom that mm-hmm. created a rupture that needed to be mended. Yes. And that that relational rupture creates shame. Not just guilt. Yeah. Yeah. Christy, as we're chatting about this, like I I know we're trying to put language to things that are, <clears throat> are really hard, but like what's stirring for you? Yeah, I I mean I guess I'm thinking like even in my study of shame and guilt and the differences, like where people experience shame in their bodies, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if you do, if you ask a hundred people, you're going to get a lot of different answers, but there are some things that like people's heart rate goes up, their blood pressure can go up. They avoid eye contact. They lower their head when they feel shame. Um, like those things are pretty common. Um, but what it leads to is this avoidance of intimacy. Mm. And and you're hitting on like that shame is breaking a relationship. But I think that that is a distinction of when someone is feeling guilty of something that they've done and then they want to avoid interacting. They want to avoid that kind of intimacy. They want to go into isolation. They want to, you know... I think that's where then shame is birthed. And so I don't know. I'm just not sure that I can. And maybe, you know, I don't know. I I hear the whole like toxic shame, healthy shame. But I'm not sure I can 100% get on board that healthy shame is is a thing and is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I know a lot of our listeners probably feel the same way. You know, a lot of the people that I know feel the same way. And I think it's, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think it's just semantics, but um, I think there's an important aspect to this that I want to continue to tease out. Um, hmm. But the other thing that I thought of was, was we use the word shameless, right? Hmm. I, I think this is a, this might be a helpful illuminating point. Uh, we use the word shameless to describe somebody who like, behaves in whatever way they want without regard for the people that they're hurting. Right. I mean, I I don't know what the definition is, the technical definition of shameless. Let me look it up. Hmm. Right. You guys know what that, you know, shamelessness is not, it's not a good thing to be shameless. Um, It is, I mean, that's the, let me just try the definition here, but that's the definition that I have, like feeling no shame, impervious to disgrace. Marked by a lack of shame. Now, if shame is all bad, like being shameless is like, that's virtuous. Like, that's great. But um, the third definition here, destitute of shame, wanting modesty, brazen-faced, <laughs> insensible <laughs> to, degra- to disgrace. Brazen-faced, brazen-faced. insensible buffoon. To disgrace, yes. Um, so anyway, I, I think of shamelessness as someone who 
who behaves in like, just they go out and they get what they want without regard for who they're hurting. That's a shameless person. And I think what they need then is a little bit of shame, (laughs) not toxic shame. They shouldn't feel like they're a, you know, horrible, no good person. But what they need is to have a, like have a healthy fear of violating relationships of have a healthy fear of hurting people. And have a, have a, like a, I don't want to do that. Not because I want to keep the law perfectly, right? And, and follow all the rules and be personally like righteous, but because I don't want to hurt the people that are in my life. That's, I think, the distinction for me that makes this an important aspect and an important thing to talk about. You know, what I'm thinking about is our personalities, our pasts, right? Uh, play into this a, a lot, right? So if you're talking to someone who has gone through a lot of neglect and abuse and that type of thing, it, it's it's fair, I think, to say that maybe the way they experience shame is going to be different than how somebody who hasn't experienced that kind yeah, of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if maybe someone, and this is theory, so I could be wrong in this, but if people are experiencing shame and I'm not even arguing whether it's toxic or healthy, but just in general, how they respond to that. Um, someone who would come across as shameless, my guess is they're experiencing shame, but what they're doing, the way that they're responding to the shame that they're experiencing is that they're blaming somebody else so that they come across as being shameless and someone who experiences shame, uh, in another way would blame themselves and go into a shame spiral and come across as being shamed. Does that make sense? Mm. And so I wonder if part of it is they're both experiencing shame, but the way that they're navigating it is different. Um, Who they're blaming for that is different. Mm. Interesting. I don't know. Just a thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's really intriguing, Christy. Well, listener, obviously we are trying to talk and tease out things that are at the edges of our understanding. So appreciate you going along with us here. Um, let, let me let me continue on with Naomi's comment and see if this clarifies things or brings new questions. There's more. There's in, there's more. But wait, great. But wait. Okay, but wait. There's more. Here we go. She uses an example here. She says, "I feel guilty that I ate an extra cookie. I broke a personal rule, but no one else gets hurt. I also may feel some toxic shame that the cookie leads to extra weight." Because I believe the cookie will make me somehow, and that weight will make me somehow unacceptable and an object of judgment from others. Right? And then she contrasts that with, <clears throat> I feel a combination of healthy shame and guilt when I yell at my kids. Because it both breaks one of my parenting rules, but I also see that as an abuse of my power and damaging to my relationship with my kids. Now, I know how to repair this. But if I didn't yet understand that, a friend may need me, may need to help me recognize that my actions were shameful, hopefully without exiling me from the community. But if I was severe and unrepentant, then that may be necessary for the safety of others. So she's saying that being angry, like getting angry, yelling, being violent maybe and like verbally abusive is is wrongdoing but it's also wrong relating 
Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just enough to resolve the wrongdoing by confessing it, but there's also then another dynamic or dimension to the wrongdoing where it breaks the fabric of a relationship that needs repaired. Right. It was shameful because it didn't honor the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I would I would argue that like, you know, shame is an emotion. And so how do we how do we handle whatever the emotion that we're experiencing, whether it's anger or shame or anxiety? And in the way that we do that is we we notice it, we name it, and we navigate it. And when it comes to shame, the way we navigate it is not just internally, but and, and this is true for other emotions, maybe anger and other things, but we also sometimes have to navigate that in relationship with other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is important, Christy, because your your dissertation, your work uh, that your second reader was very pleased with, um, or your first reader, um, is is on emotions, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it has been, if you're able to notice, name, and navigate your emotions, it's an opportunity, I think, to grow in your intimacy with God. Mm-hmm. And that's what the that's what the research showed as well, but it's true in human relationships. If you grow in your emotional intelligence, it's going to impact the way you relate to your wives, right? Hopefully you'd understand their emotions. You'd be able to express your emotions and name them uh, more accurately and more vulnerably. I think that Mm -hmm. that's true for God. And I think this is where faith comes into it of when we experience shame um, and we're able to notice, oh, that's, I'm actually feeling shame. Cause sometimes that can be hidden under anger or fear or other emotions, right? But we're able to actually notice it and name it for shame as what it is. Then we can navigate it and say, okay, well, the truth is um, because I ate the extra cookie, because I might gain a pound doesn't mean I'm bad, right? That's the lie I'm believing. What's the truth? Um, Or because I yelled at my kids that I'm a bad mom. Um, I I made a poor choice, but that is not my identity. And I think that that is what emotions do is it gets to the core of what do we believe about ourselves and about the people around us and about God. And it's this opportunity to learn and to grow and to be more vulnerable um, and more intimate. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's good. I'm also realizing, uh, Christy, that some of what you were thinking about earlier is, um, is part of what Naomi goes on to say like the last part of her comment where she says, if my yelling at my kids is unchecked. So this goes to what you're saying, like that there's no way to resolve it or I don't know how to resolve it or I don't resolve it. So if I just yell at my kids over and over and I never seek restitution, you know, if I never repent and Mm -hmm. seek a a restoration of that relationship, if yelling at my kids is unchecked, they are, they are likely to internalize toxic shame. Yes. Because they don't have, like, they don't have a way of resolving why did why did this happen? Like, mom doesn't seem to feel bad about this or think that there was anything wrong with this, and so they ha- these kids have to tell themselves a story about that, right? And so they internalize toxic shame. Mm-hmm. And she goes on to say, "This is Naomi again. I think our toxic shame comes from someone else being shameless." Mm-hmm. There's that word again. 
And the shame therefore ends up on the wrong person. Yeah. The person with the less power because it wasn't theirs in the first place. There's no way back for them other than putting the shame back on themselves. It's it's rightful owner. So basically like I, I, I thought that was fascinating that when people behave in shameless ways, they're not owning the shame that they should feel for violating the relationship, for hurting someone. And when they don't do that, the shame doesn't disappear. It has to go somewhere. And so it often then becomes internalized on the person with less power until they have enough wherewithal to put it back where it belongs. You know? Yes. And now a word from a sponsor. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, let's get back into our conversation. I see, so I've been talking about this a little bit on social media, but I see Jesus navigating the power and shame in the way that Naomi's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm, I'm developing a class for the Gravity community <clears throat> that is going to deal with the ways that Jesus interacted with women um, and part of what I'm going to point out in, let's just say, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, Jesus and the Canaanite woman, Jesus and the woman, sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's house, and Jesus, uh, excuse me, with the bleeding woman. I'm drinking my smoothie and I'm getting a little upper wind, Ben, as they say <laughs> down under. Um, so Jesus with Samaritan woman, Canaanite woman, Side the bleeding woman, the sinful woman, and the woman caught in adultery. Okay, these are like five famous interactions with women. In yeah. every story, we have the same plot elements. Every story turns on a woman who's ashamed being honored in front of more honorable people. And Jesus uses his honor, we could say to cover her shame, but I would say to lev- he leverages his honor on the woman's behalf to lift her up out of a shame category into an honorable category. He connects her to himself, and then in every story, the woman becomes the teacher to the teachers. And and I so I see this thing that Naomi's talking about in this last paragraph. I see Jesus doing it at least five times. And if mm-hmm. Jesus does it five times, he probably did it 500. You know what I mean? If we read about it five times in the yeah. Gospels, we can guess that it's a regular practice of Jesus. So mm-hmm. I think power matters. I think shame is a relational status. And I think that that's more, I'll just say this, I think that's more prevalent in Jesus's day in honor shame cultures than it is in our day, 
but I still think it exists in our culture. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's what I mean, Christy. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I think that that's, it's good stuff to chew on. I think that, you know, obviously we're not going to, we're not going to like wrap it all up in a nice little bow today. Um, wait, wait, I thought we were. No, <laughs> I know. Okay. Right. Oh. Um, but I think it's important to think about. And I think it's one of those emotions that um, it's complicated and mm-hmm. it's complicated because it's complicated because of our culture, but it's also complicated because of gender and mm-hmm. racial issues and um, even like religious how it's brought up in different religious ways um, Mm. that I can, I think can be very destructive and I think there's stuff to learn about. And and actually in all of that, I wonder if there's something about our identity that is why it's so destructive, right? Those women that you talk about, Matt, um, Jesus is doing something in, and speaking truth in front of them, right? That then shapes Mm -hmm. a truth that they can hang on to as to who they are. Yeah. I think it's powerful. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we will resolve it, Christy. Just give us enough time. No, I'm (laughs) just kidding. Um, No, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about it both in terms of the internal experience of those women, but there was also something going on for each of those women societally. Right. That Jesus, Jesus affects a change for them, not just in how they feel about themselves, but for how other people treat them and see them. And I think that that's, that's the thing that's intriguing to me about this, because I, I think I agree with you, Matt, that even though technically speaking, you know, according to the definitions, we, we live in a, you know, we don't live in an honor shame culture. Uh, we live in a guilt, guilt innocence what do they call culture. It? A guilt righteousness, guilt innocence culture. So we live in a guilt innocence culture, not an honor shame culture. But I think that we experience this all the time. We experience like shame, not just as it, it is an internal emotion, but it comes from uh, an experience, a social experience that we have with the way that other people see us, the way that we see other people. Um, and so I think that there's some, there's a lot for us to learn from Jesus in how he brings justice to people who, you know, are experiencing this kind of shame because probably because again, the society around them, they didn't have any other no. way of seeing this person besides they're shameful. And Jesus, I think part of the power of Jesus' ministry is that he he breaks open new ways of seeing people and saying, you know what, maybe there's a different way to relate to this person. Maybe, maybe they're, you know, maybe they have honor that you didn't realize before. And he he has a way of doing this, not just for individuals so they feel differently about themselves, but for cultures, for societies, for social relationships that I think is it's just really powerful. It's it's making me feel uh Excited. I want to learn from Jesus again. Yes. How to do some of this stuff. So it's amazing. Maybe then if I could just draw some conclusions about how I see Jesus interacting with shameful people. <clears throat> shameful shameful or people. So like for instance, okay, the both. woman caught in adultery is shameful. Okay. The people yeah. who are going to stone her are shameless. 
Right. And what Jesus does to the shameful person is she is he moves towards them with a relationship that brings honor. And what pers- what Jesus does to a shameless person is he moves towards them in a way that reveals their shame. He doesn't he doesn't sh- so this is where our language breaks down because I wouldn't say that Jesus shames them. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's I think because yeah. of the negative connotation that has, but technically I think he does. Right. But let's just say he reveals he reveals There's their another shame. word. I mean <clears throat> yeah. yeah. He reveals their He reveals their shamefulness. shamefulness. So for instance, the parable of the prodigal son. This is what brought it up, I think, on our Christmas. Yeah, you right? were talking about this. Jesus tells right. the entire Christmas story episode. of that parable yep. so that the people who are angry that he's eating and drinking with sinners can see that they're acting shamefully. Not righteously, mm-hmm. but shamefully. Mm-hmm. And and so I guess the first thing is I think I think Jesus acts differently towards shameful and shameless people. Something different. Two, to say that there's healthy shame doesn't mean that um, that Jesus leaves people in shame, right? And this is where I think also too, like we've learned from Brene Brown, how difficult toxic shame is and how crushing it is. And listeners, I want to say yes, but people have to mm-hmm. reckon with the relational ruptures they're creating. They have to tell the truth about it. Yes. They have to experience the damage of it relationally before they can rectify it, before they can actually repent of it, before they can, uh, you know, rectify it and reckon with it. And so I think the second thing I want to say is, (laughs) I think shame, I think our experience of shame helps us reckon with reality, but Jesus never leaves us in shame. To be left in shame, I think, is what we then would describe as toxic shame. So that's the second thing I, and maybe I'll stop there and just see if there's any interaction around that. I think, I think for me that, that does help a lot because, and maybe that's one of the distinctions we can make between toxic shame and and healthy shame. Toxic shame is a dead end. There's no hope because there's no way out of it Mm -hmm. because it's, it's about who you are. You're just broken and and defective and, and you can't do anything right. Like, Mm-hmm. There's no way out of it, but with the healthy shame that is, you know, a deterrent to us hurting one another, there, there is a way out of it. And I think that's what you're saying. Jesus always offers a way out of it. It's like the, the people who are getting ready to stone the woman caught in adultery or the, you know, the, the religious leaders who are upset that Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners, they needed to experience the shame that the shamefulness that they were, that, that was present in them but not so that they could be crushed underneath it, right? And squashed, yeah. but so that they could repent and that that relationship could be restored and societies could be like lead to flourishing. Like, so the kingdom of God could come on, you know, on earth as it is in heaven. Like that's the, that's the goal of Jesus telling that parable is to call them to repentance, not to feel terrible about themselves, but to reckon with what they've done. And so I think that's, that's a, that's a, I don't know, that gives me a lot of hope. That like that's, and I'm thinking about, you know, how, how bad I felt that I had hurt my mom's feelings. I'm thinking about that experience again. And it wasn't that I was convinced that what I had said was wrong. It was, I don't want to hurt my mother. 
I don't want to cause this kind of pain. And me feeling that was different from being convinced that I had done something wrong. I felt shame and it led me to repentance. I don't remember exactly what I did. I just remember thinking, I don't want to do that anymore. And I think I started behaving a little bit differently around my mom. So anyway, it, it, com- it yeah. resonates with me. I wonder if, I mean, this maybe sounds super spiritual. I don't mean it this way, but I wonder if the response to shame, to shamelessness or shamefulness could be the same, could both be confession, could both be repentance for the, some, for the person who's shameless, Mm -hmm. they're confessing that, that they cared less. They didn't care that they're blaming somebody else that they just thought that they were, you know, all that in a bag of chips and they didn't need God. <laughs> right. All but for the person who's yeah. <laughs> fully, yeah. full of shame uh-huh. is, is also repenting and saying, God help yes. me in, in believing truth. And yes. I'm confessing the lies and yes. I need you in both yeah. cases. There needs to be a, a, a shift in their thinking and in, you know, and then ultimately in their, yeah living it out. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really great, Christy. I think, I think that we're confessing what is true. And for the person struggling under toxic shame, what's true is that like your, like your toxic, your toxic shame, uh, need not, you know, crush you. Um, that that's, what's true is that you've taken on shame. Somebody put this shame on you and it doesn't belong to you. Um, and for this person behaving shamelessly, the, the truth they have to confess is the harm that they've caused, right. um, you know, and, and come with repentance and, and restitution. Yeah. yeah. Well, really good. maybe we should leave it there. I think that's enough? a good idea. Friends. Yeah. I mean, we bit off a big chunk. We did. Mm, I blame Naomi. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, Naomi. Th- I don't yes, blame her. I, I blame I blame <laughs> her, and uh, what I what I mean by that is I honor her um, right. for uh, being so thoughtful and sharing uh, really deep reflections with us uh, and the rest of the Gravity community. So thanks, Naomi, for being part of the community and being part yeah, of the Gravity Commons. I think if readers want to, you know, read more. Uh, Brené Brown's Atlas of the Heart is a great book. Um, mm. She talks a little bit about shame. Um, and I mentioned at the very beginning, I never told the the title, but I'm reading The Shame Factor um, Shame by Factor. Stephen Poulter. It's not a faith-based book, but um, but it's got a lot to learn mm. and a lot to, to kind of uncover. And, um, you know, there's always more to, to unearth. So, okay. But I think this is good. All right. Well, great job, everybody. Yeah. Thank you again, Naomi. Yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate your, your thoughts. All right. Prompted a whole podcast episode. So keep writing, keep sharing. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the gravity podcast. If you're finding it helpful, please tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is the best advertising ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode to join discussions about the podcast and lots more join us in the gravity community it's free to join and you can connect there with other listeners to the podcast to talk about faith and spirituality and whatever else comes up to join go to gravitycommons.com community 
The Gravity Podcast is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his mixing, engineering, and production work at aaronsternke.com. Finally, we would love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, you can go to gravitycommons.com slash message and click the start recording button. You can also email us at podcast at gravitycommons.com. Catch you next time. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.